Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. This is Lung Cancer Considered. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu, Associate Professor at Georgetown University. In this episode, I get to sit down with Dr. Zosha Piotrowska. Dr. Piotrowska is an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and a renowned thoracic oncologist at Massachusetts General Hospital. She is a global authority in EGFR mutant lung cancer, among other subtypes, and she joins us today to discuss some of the new advances in the field. Zosha, thank you for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Stephen, and thanks for that kind introduction. Zosha, do you, before we start, do you remember the first time we met? I think, was it at Vail? It was. That's what I, I was actually just telling one of our fellows about what an amazing program the Vail course is. And in fact, we, I remember this because we were going through some of the people that were in our group and how many friends I've made from that course many years ago. Yeah, I think this year will be 30 years. Does that sound right? <laughs> at least. <laughs> <laughs> Not that long. But today we're here to talk a bit about EGFR mutant lung cancer. So, you know, we have a wide range of experience in our audience. Zosha, maybe you can set the stage for some of our first time listeners. What is EGFR? Why is that important in lung cancer? It's a great question. So, you know, EGFR, I think, is important for a number of reasons. Maybe the first and foremost is because it's really the prototype of oncogene-driven lung cancers. It was the first oncogenic driver mutation identified in non-small cell lung cancer back, it was first described in 2004, so 15 years ago now, which is hard to believe. And I think it's important because it really established the paradigms of one, molecular testing and how important and how feasible it is in lung cancer and also how effective targeted therapy can be in this space. So EGFR stands for the epidermal growth factor receptor. Mutations in EGFR occur in about 10 to 15% of all comers with non-small cell lung cancer, but we know that that incidence is much higher in in subgroups, in particular in younger, never smoking or former light smokers, as well as in certain East Asian countries as well. And I think, you know, the final thing to say is kind of setting the stage with EGFR is that it's important to point out that really now we can't consider all EGFR mutations to be the same. We know that the most common types of EGFR mutations that we see in lung cancer are the exon 19 deletions and L858R point mutations. And together, those make up about 85% of all EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer. So they're definitely by far the most common. And these are the ones that we're really going to be referring to for the majority of this talk. The kind of classic sensitizing mutations, they tend to be highly responsive to EGFR-targeted therapies, but they are important to distinguish from some of the less common types of mutations that we also see, including the atypical but sensitizing mutations like G719 mutations, S768I, and others. And then I think critically important to distinguish them also from the EGFR exon 20 insertions which are this unique subgroup of EGFR mutant lung cancers. They seem to make up up to 10% of EGFR mutations in lung cancer. And I don't know if we'll have time to get into it today, but they're really a mutation subtype in and of themselves and have some different treatment options. So just to set the stage, you know, mostly what we're going to be talking about today is going to be patients with EGFR exon 19 deletions and L858R mutation. Yeah, that's a, a very important point. It's not a binomial positive or negative. That doesn't mean anything. You really need that granularity now with with the treatments that we have and focused on those sensitizing 19 deletions and L858R, we have multiple EGFR TKIs approved in that first line setting. We'll refer to these as first generation, second gen, third gen. Can you review some of the differences between these classes? Sure. And again, I think, you know, one of the important things to say is that this same paradigm can actually be applied in a lot of ways to other oncogene drivers in, in lung cancer, where we have different generations of targeted therapies that have been developed over time. 
So in EGFR inhibitors, we the oldest drugs are, as you might expect, the first generation EGFR inhibitors, erlotinib and jafitinib. These were the first EGFR-targeted therapies to enter the clinic, and they were the first ones to be shown to be effective. What we saw is that when patients progressed on these first-gen TKIs, about half of them progressed through the EGFR T790M resistance mutation. And the second and third generation EGFR inhibitors are actually first developed to target T790M. The second generation EGFR inhibitors that we have approved, at least in the United States, are afatinib and dacomitinib. And then, of course, the prototype third generation EGFR inhibitors are simertinib. What we've seen as we've seen these generations of drugs evolve is that they've become not only more potent and more selective for mutant EGFR. So osimertinib is a highly potent inhibitor of EGFR mutations, particularly exon 19 and L858R. It's also been developed to be more sparing of wild-type EGFR, which in the case of these drugs translates to a better safety profile, so less of the side effects that we typically see with first and second generation EGFR inhibitors that cause um, GI toxicities, diarrhea, skin toxicities as well. Those are all related to inhibition of wild-type EGFR. And then I think the third key point about their generation EGFR inhibitors, such as osimertinib, is they've also been developed to have better CNS penetration, so better activity in the brain, which has been really an important advance for our patients. What we've seen historically with these different drugs is that, you know, while third-generation EGFR inhibitors were first developed to target T790M, We've learned through important studies like the FLORA trial that they're actually more effective than first-generation TKIs in the frontline setting. So osimertinib has now become our standard of care for newly diagnosed EGFR mutant patients in the United States, in Europe, and in many parts of the world. Now, we've also recently seen an approval for a combination of erlotinib and ramucirumab. What's your personal take on the RELAY trial? It's a really interesting question. You know, the RELAY trial, just to briefly review, was phase three placebo-controlled trial of erlotinib, the first-generation TKI, plus or minus the VEGF-R2 antibody ramucirumab. What RELAY showed was an improvement in median progression-free survival for patients who received the combination of erlotinib and ramucirumab from 12 to 19 months. We also saw that the toxicities were pretty much what we'd expect with the combination. There wasn't any unexpected safety signals with the combination of erlotinib and ramucirumab. We don't yet have overall survival data from this study, but based on the improved progression-free survival, the FDA actually has approved this combination as a first-line treatment option for our patients. Just to put this into context, you know, we've previously seen other studying similar uh, approaches, and most importantly, the NEJ026 study was a study out of Japan, which looked at erlotinib plus or minus bevacizumab. This was a phase three study, which also showed an improvement in progression-free survival But what we saw over the past few years with longer follow-up from NEJ026 was that there was actually no improvement in overall survival with the addition of bevacizumab to erlotinib. And I think that's important when we think about how we're going to use the relay data in our practice. You know, in my opinion, I think these VEGF combinations certainly have promise. I think we've long seen that VEGF inhibitors may have some benefit, some unique benefit in EGFR mutant lung cancers but we're still really learning how to use them. I think it's hard to know what to make of these trials, particularly RELAY, when, you know, while the study was ongoing, our standard of care shifted from drugs or erlotinib to osimertinib based on the FLORA trial. So, you know, right now, I don't generally use these erlotinib, ramucirumab, or other VEGF inhibitor combinations for my newly diagnosed patients because I think osimertinib is a great choice. It's an oral therapy. It doesn't require infusional therapy. It's well-tolerated. But I think I'm very curious to see how these data will look with osimertinib. And indeed, there is an ongoing first line osimertinib plus or minus bevacizumab study that's led by Helena Yu through the cooperative group system. 
I believe there's also an ongoing study of OC plus ramucirumab. And so I think, you know, we'll have to wait and see what, how those studies look before deciding what role this combo should have in the setting of osimertinib in the future. And with you on that, I mean, the, the outcomes with osimertinib are so good. The CNS penetration is, is so impressive. But an 18-month PFS in 2021, we feel like we can probably do better. So we're still trying to make strides there. Another strategy that has been shown to improve outcomes, again, in, in combination with first-generation TKI agents, is the addition of chemotherapy. Do you feel like if you don't have access to osimertinib, this is an appropriate strategy? Yeah, I actually, I'm quite excited about the chemo combination studies that we've seen for a few reasons. No, I think the rationale here is a good one. You know, the idea being that adding chemotherapy may help eradicate any subclones that may not be as TKI responsive. And I think also importantly, we've seen some good data suggesting that, you know, up to a third of patients with EGFR mutant lung cancer, somewhat surprisingly to me, don't make it onto second line therapy and so may not be able to access chemotherapy in later line settings where we know that chemo is an effective treatment strategy for these patients. So we've now seen, you know, as you alluded to, two independent phase three randomized trials of first generation EGFR inhibitors, both done with gefitinib, both comparing gefitinib alone to gefitinib plus carboplatin pemetrexed chemotherapy. The first was the NEJ009 study out of Japan, and then the second was the study from Tata Memorial Hospital in India led by Dr. Narona. And each of these patients showed a significant improvement in both progression-free survival and really importantly, I think, an overall survival benefit to the addition of chemotherapy. So you know, I think based on that data and again, you know, safety signals, which don't show any unexpected toxicities with these combinations. If I was living in a place where I didn't have access to frontline OC, I'm convinced by these trials, and I think I would reach for gefitinib plus chemotherapy combination. And I think, again, you know, what's really is the question for us in 2021 here in the United States is how will that combination look with osimertinib? So do you think that holds, that's under study, do you think that holds promise? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it certainly does hold promise. The ongoing study looking at that question is the FLORA-2 trial, which again has a very similar design, osimertinib plus or minus carboplatin pemetrexed chemotherapy. And I'm very curious to see what the results of that will show. And I think, you know, the other thing to say is that we, the one question that remains open is, do all patients need this combination? Whether we're talking about chemotherapy or a VEGF therapy combination or some other combo, you know, we know that there are some patients with EGFR who do great with the TKI alone, who can be on it for much longer than the median progression-free survival that we typically see, sometimes on it for years and years. On the other hand, we have patients who have suboptimal responses and don't get it quite as much as we'd like out of these treatments. And so I think one key question is going to be, perhaps, can we identify the patients that are most at risk of suboptimal outcomes and identify the patients that are most likely to benefit from the upfront chemotherapy combinations? So I think that's something that I'm really excited to see. What's your take on these combos, Stephen? Well, I think that the primary endpoint for Flora 2 is PFS. <laughs> I personally think that it should be OS. And As you uh, know, I agree with you. And we've had many discussions about this point. I think, you know, this is a study that we really would love to see, you know, the overall survival improvement, just like we did with the Indian and Japanese studies. But I think it will be positive. I think that this will lead to overall survival improvements. I think we can make major gains, but your point is well taken that if we can focus those interventions on populations where the benefit really is sort of justifying that extra toxicity with chemo and you know, clearance of CTDNA is something that's being looked at by some of our yeah. colleagues. I think there's a lot of promise there, but you know, what's old is new again, right? Chemotherapy is showing a lot, of, a lot of promise. What do you think holds sort of the, the most promise in that frontline setting? 
I think from the data that we have so far, I would say I'm most excited about the chemo combination studies, you know, again, just based on the data that we've seen emerge with the with the Jafitnib. But I think really this kind of tailored approach is what I think holds the most promise. You know, we're in an era of personalized medicine, and I really hope that in the future we can be smarter in selecting treatment for these patients, not just you have an EGFR mutation, you know, you get osimertinib plus chemotherapy or whatever the standard of care is, but really looking at whether it be commutations, ctDNA clearance, other things to be able to select the optimal treatment for patients. You know, I think one example of this is that we know patients with EGFR mutations and co-mutations in P53 and RB1 have an increased risk of small cell transformation, and yet we don't know what to do with that information right now. And so I think in the future, if we can identify that kind of genotype signature and have a treatment option that prevents the development of small cell transformation, that would really be, I think, you know, a big step forward. Now, a common question that I'm sure we both get is about immunotherapy. And we have direct-to-consumer advertising. We have a lot of stories in the press. Should immunotherapy be explored in the frontline setting for someone with an EGFR mutation? Should it be combined with TKI therapy? Pretty common questions. And we have good data here. Can you summarize some of that for us? Sure. So I think the first thing to say is that there's really pretty good evidence, I think, at this point that combining EGFR inhibitors together with immunotherapy seems not to be a very safe strategy. And I would say the best data that we have so far, and it's small, but was the osimertinib plus dervalimab of the arm of the TATIN study, where we saw, I think it was a 40% rate of pneumonitis with that combination, and that, that was actually terminated early. So that to me is, you know, a big red flag. And we've also seen toxicities when combining earlier generations of TKIs, EGFR TKI specifically with immunotherapy. And so to me, I think that TKI immunotherapy combos really haven't panned out. And I think those safety signals are real. So, you know, for combinations with TKIs, I don't have much hope there. I think the role of chemo and immunotherapy in these patients remains an open question. And that's probably the question that get asked most commonly, you know, from colleagues and referrals. As you know, the EGFR mutant patients were excluded from the Keynote 189 study. So, you know, the carboplatin, pemetrexid, pembrolizumab data can't be applied to the EGFR mutant population, though there is an ongoing study called Keynote 789, which is actually looking at that combination in the EGFR positive patients. Of course, you know, the best data that we have for chemo and immunotherapy in EGFR mutant patients is with the four-drug combination from Empower 150, carboplatin, paclitaxel, bevacizumab, and atezolizumab. And there we did see an improvement in overall survival in the overall population, including the EGFR positive population. But I will say that the number of patients with activating EGFR mutations in that study was quite small. And my concern there is that the regimen has a fair bit of toxicity. The four drug combination is certainly, I think, you know, can be tough. And so I think you have to be careful in selecting patients. And then I think the final point that's really important to make when we think about immunotherapy in the EGFR space is that there is I think, real concern about using EGFR inhibitors following immunotherapy. So if you have a patient, for example, who progresses on osimertinib and you put them on the Empower 150 regimen, if in the future you want to reintroduce a TKI and in particular osimertinib, which we often do in these patients, whether on a clinical trial or in some other setting, we know now that there is an increased risk of toxicities, immune-related toxicities, and in particular with osimertinib, an increased risk of pneumonitis when patients resume TKIs after immunotherapy. That risk seems to be higher within a short time frame, less than three months after immunotherapy, but may not fully wash out even after the three months. So we have to be careful, I think. And I agree with your point that, you know, patients are coming and asking for these therapies. The direct-to-consumer advertising is out there, and it can be a tough conversation to talk about, you know, why immunotherapy may not hold as much promise right now for patients with EGFR as it does for other lung cancer subtypes. 
But I really do hope that we'll see that change in the future, that we'll have better combinations or better ways of harnessing the immune system to fight EGFR mutant cancers. Now, that safety signal we see with a specific sequence is something that's kind of new to oncology. When we think of chemotherapy, if if someone's not tolerating chemotherapy, if chemotherapy is not effective, we stop. And then, you know, within a few weeks, we kind of have a clean slate to start over. Yeah. But that's not really true with immunotherapy. So you had mentioned from Dr. Schoenfeld's data that when you start with immunotherapy and then introduce an EGFR TKI in a patient whose cancer has an EGFR mutation, much more toxic. Now, sometimes in the real world, patients will come to see us and we won't have their mutation status ready yet, but they're symptomatic. They need to start. We have PDL1, maybe because that comes back pretty quickly. So if we have someone with metastatic lung cancer, symptomatic, PDL1 is high, I don't have mutation status. Should I just guess based on phenotype? What advice do you have for our colleagues? I think, you know, really in this day and age, guessing is we shouldn't have to guess. I think, you know, we have ways to get, a, to get around, to start needing to start treatment. And what I often will do in that situation, if I have a patient that I think has a good chance of having an EGFR mutation or another oncogene driver mutation, I will often, but they need to start treatment, I will actually often start with chemotherapy alone, give them a cycle of carboplatin pemetrexed. During that three weeks, hopefully the molecular testing will come back. If you find a targetable alteration, you can then switch to the appropriate TKI, whether at that point or, you know, after a quick restaging scan to see how they're doing on the chemotherapy. But importantly, if they don't have that in a mutation on that testing, then you can feel comfortable adding in the pembrolizumab or your favorite immunotherapy with cycle two. And I think that can be a way to balance that need to start treatment. And sometimes clinically, we really do need to start, but also not closing any doors for patients who may have a targetable alteration. Couldn't agree more. This was something you had proposed years ago now, and we wondered if it would be too complex, but I've been pretty happily surprised to see that a lot of our colleagues are really adopting that kind of strategy. So I think that's, that's the right way to do it. Let's fast forward. Someone's tolerating osimertinib, doing well. Most cancers will unfortunately develop an acquired resistance to osimertinib. So at that point, when your scans are showing progression, what do you do in your own practice? Well, I think, you know, the first thing to say is, you know, when we see progression, it's important to establish whether it's local kind of oligo progression versus more widespread progression. Sometimes we can if patients are having just an isolated site of progression, but everything else is well controlled. Sometimes we can get away with some local therapy and continuing on osimertinib. But more often, I would say that, you know, there's more widespread progression and we need to start thinking about what our next line of therapy is going to be. In my practice, I think, you know, a biopsy is critical. And here I would really highlight the role of tissue biopsy still. Obviously, there's a lot of excitement and hope for liquid biopsy circulating tumor DNA analysis. But in the setting of osimertinib progression, where first of all, we're still learning about, you know, what resistance patterns will look like among patients who are progressing on first-line osimertinib, the numbers from the series we have are still quite small. But we do know that some patients will have targetable resistance mechanisms, including, you know, a significant portion of a small but significant proportion of these patients, I should say, who undergo histologic transformations, particularly to small cell carcinoma. And that I think is really critical to identify. And that is something, of course, that we can only pick up on tissue biopsy. So I will try to get a tissue biopsy for these patients whenever I can. If for whatever reason, it's not feasible to get a tissue biopsy, I think a liquid biopsy can be a reasonable alternative, understanding that there are some things like transformations that you might miss. And then I try to get patients onto clinical trials if I can. I try to select that resistance mechanism, therapy that targets a particular resistance mechanism if possible. You know, the ones that we have treatment options for right now include MET amplification being the one that I kind of hope to find when I biopsy patients after osimertinib. We know that there's good 
good evidence for activity of combined EGFR and MET inhibitors in some trials out there. But for a majority of these patients who really don't have something targetable on their somertinib biopsy, I think chemotherapy can be a really good option. And again, this is a place where carboplatin pemetrexid can be really effective for these patients. I think one kind of unique situation that's important to highlight is patients who have good CNS control on osimertinib, and but yet start to progress systemically. And I know you and I have talked a lot about this and even looked at some of our data because I think there are some instances like that where osimertinib may not be working as well systemically, but still providing some degree of CNS control. And I personally believe that there may be a role there for combining osimertinib with chemotherapy. And I think, you know, there's an upcoming study called the COMPEL trial, which will actually be looking at that at carboplatin, pemetrexid plus osimertinib versus chemotherapy alone to see if improved CNS control is seen in that OC arm. I don't know what your, what's your practice for those patients with a history of brain mets who progress on OC? Well, as you mentioned, we've recently published <laughs> our collective data, and I do feel there's a role to continue osimertinib and kind of learn that the hard way early on when we move on to trials, we often have to stop all existing therapy. And I just found that for patients who had good CNS control with OC, when you stop the OC for that washout for a trial, you lose control in the brain. It's just such a tough place to lose control. And we were really limited to trials where you could continue osimertinib. And so in practice, I often would continue chemo. But in the absence of brain meds, if there are no brain metastases, in your practice, is there any role for Empower 150 for a chemo IO VEGF approach? I think it's a discussion with patients. You know, I will be truthful and say I've actually haven't yet reached for the Empower 150 regimen, even though it's been quite a few years. And I've often said that I think for the right patient, it may be the right thing. I just, I have found that, you know, carboplatin and pemetrexid is so well tolerated that I find it hard to take that four drug approach and, and the added toxicities that go along with it not really, you know, knowing yet how much the immunotherapy is adding. So I think it remains to be seen, but I'm not a chemo and immunotherapy kind of believer at heart, I guess, at this point. <laughs> Let me pass this on to a sort of another debatable area. You know, you've got such a deep understanding of EGFR mutant lung cancer. What's your practice when it comes to adjuvant TKI therapy? <laughs> well, I'll say that maybe I'm not a chemo IO believer for the EGFR mutant patients, although I hope to be proven wrong in the future. But I will say I think I am an adjuvant TKI believer. As you know, there's been a lot of debate and discussion of this point over the past year because of the ADORA trial, which of course, I, I think you've discussed maybe even in this podcast was a big randomized study that showed a marked improvement in disease for survival for EGFR mutant patients who had resected stage 1b to 3a EGFR mutant cancers. Importantly, these patients, you know, could and should receive chemotherapy, but then were randomized to adjuvant osimertinib for three years versus placebo. And we saw, I think, a really impressive improvement in disease-free survival for these patients. Of course, we don't yet have overall survival data, which is a big point of debate, but the FDA has approved adjuvant osimertinib based on this data. And I think that, you know, in the absence of overall survival data, which of course I'm eagerly waiting to see, but also taking into consideration the good, you know, safety profile of osimertinib, the, the good quality of life that generally my patients have had on osimertinib, I think it's something that's certainly worth considering with patients. And I have already had these conversations with my patients in the clinic. You know, I think an interesting point is how we're going to incorporate molecular testing into early stage disease. We've spent, you know, frankly, a hard time getting broad molecular testing, even in the metastatic setting. But in our institution, we've actually moved to reflexively testing resected cancers for EGFR now. I'm curious what it's like at Georgetown, because we've had a lot of debate about this at MGH. Well, it's in flux. <laughs> as, as you're sort of, one of the things I struggle with is you know, we look at the neoadjuvant space as one where we expect immunotherapy to 
become standard of care at some point. Mm. And I would want to steer someone away from a neoadjuvant immunotherapy approach if they had a driver mutation, but I would expect that to apply not just to EGFR, but also to ALK. Yeah. And if it applies to ALK, probably ROS1, and that list continues to go down. So am I expected to do neoadjuvant NGS? And can I really expect a patient to wait two weeks or possibly much longer you know, before coming up with a neoadjuvant plan for someone with a resectable lung cancer? Or what's your workflow looking like? Have you figured that out yet? I think that's such a great point, especially in the neoadjuvant space. You know, I would say we haven't figured it out yet because you know, we're still using neoadjuvant therapies really just in the context of clinical trials. But I think that really will be a critical point. I agree with you. I would feel much less enthusiastic for a neoadjuvant immunotherapy approach in a patient that I knew had EGFR or ELK or probably many of the other oncogene drivers. And so I think this is something that we're going to have to sort out going forward. And it's probably going to require close collaboration with our surgical colleagues, with pathology to try to figure out, are there ways that we can streamline these, these processes? You know, for our resected patients, we're actually doing targeted PCR-based testing just for EGFR, which comes back pretty quickly. And so perhaps in the future, you know, we, this is actually an area where we might have to use some of these single gene assays or even ALK and ROS1-IHC, among other things, that have quicker turnaround time for that reason, just so that we can make sure that we're right, selecting the right neoadjuvant approach. But it's yeah, a really that's... good point. Yeah, it's kind of what we're shifting towards using some of these results that come back fairly quickly, but not all the markers have really good rapid tests. And you know, now we're going to worry about exhausting tissue from probably a relatively small neoadjuvant biopsy sample. So these are the things that keep me up at night. I will say in the adjuvant setting, you know, while I appreciate that PCR for EGFR would be sort of supported by the highest level of evidence, it, doesn't, it just doesn't feel right to order PCR in 2021, right? It's totally true. And I think, you know, the balance here is between reimbursement and, you know, what's going to be covered and what we want to know, you know, for our patients now, and also what we want to know about treatment options for the future and potentially clinical trial options. So, you know, I think that's, again, still a discussion with our pathology colleagues. And and frankly, it's probably going to be a discussion that has to happen at higher levels to ensure coverage and reimbursement for broader panel testing in the resected setting. Because I agree, I think, you know, if I had to look forward five or 10 years in the future, if, you know, the adjuvant osimertinib data, you know, the Odora data shows improvement in overall survival, then my guess would be that we'd probably see similar results if we looked at, you know, the ALK and the ROS1 and the RET and all of these other oncogene-driven cancers. And it's going to be hard to generate that data for these very rare subgroups. So we may find ourselves extrapolating, but I think that broad testing is going to be important in the future. So now in your practice in the adjuvant setting, you know, whether you're giving TKI or not, MRI routinely, is that part of your practice? For brain MRI? Mm-hmm. It is, you know, it is. And I would, well, certainly, I mean, of course, at, at the time of, of initial diagnosis and, and staging, but in surveillance, you know, I have, I think for, particularly for EGFR patients and for situations where we have really good CNS penetrant therapies, I think, you know, doing some sort of CNS surveillance makes sense. You know, not necessarily often, every six to 12 months, probably closer to 12 for many patients in the absence of set symptoms, but I have found that, you know, it's much better if you're going to find a brain met to find a small asymptomatic brain met that you can treat, you know, with a TKI if you haven't already used it or with, with um, stereotactic radiation. It's much better, less distressing for patients to find that, you know, when it's small and, and easier to treat. So I will say, you know, that we have been doing surveillance for the EGFR patients. I'm curious, what's your practice there? Absolutely. For EGFR once a year, and I leave it open as to how long we do it because yeah. I think late recurrence as possible, maybe even more so for ALK, which I think mm. has an even stronger tropism. And I extend that I'm pretty generous with the surveillance MRI because I have had CNS-only progression that I've picked up 
on routine scan and you don't want to wait for those symptoms to occur. I have had the same. And, you know, I think you only have to see one or two of those to really change your practice, especially, you know, I think for patients where they hadn't already been on osimertinib, you can pick up those small brain mets, put them on osimertinib and see a nice response. You only have to see one of those to keep, you know, doing that in your practice. Absolutely. Those are, this has been so helpful. I want to be respectful of time, but you know, we're coming up on almost 10 years, I think, since, since our Vail workshop. So <laughs> I value your perspective, your expertise, always have. Uh, it's been you know over a year now since we've actually seen each other in person. And on this podcast, we like to revisit some of the memories of past meetings, of better times. Is there a, an ISLC meeting that holds a special memory for you? You know, I was just thinking about that, actually, because like you said, it's been a year since the pandemic started and, and since we all went into lockdown. And I actually have really fond memories of Barcelona. You know, for me, the last big international meeting that I attended, you know, in the fall of, of 2020, I know, 2019. And I think it was still at a time when we were all naive and had no idea what was coming. But I actually remember running into you, Stephen, before the meeting on the street in Barcelona and chatting and, and then going to a meeting together. And, you know, I remember going to Sagrada Familia and running into other friends. And it just feels like the last vestige of normalcy before all the craziness started. So it's one that I think I will always keep in, in my memories as, as a really fun and you know great meeting. So I really hope that you know it won't be the last and that we're going to get back to seeing each other face to face, hopefully very soon, because you know it really is one of the parts of this community that I miss so much, you know, of meetings and travel. I, I don't miss the plane trips and I don't miss being away from my family, but I miss seeing all of my friends and you know, catching up and being able to stay, you know, in, in touch more closely than just by Zoom. I remember that we kind of randomly <laughs> running into each yeah. other, a Perry meeting, sort of unplanned, even in Yokohama. I remember just seeing you at the mall, I think. That's right. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> well, those, those are the, you know, I think I, it's surprising to me. I didn't realize how much I'd missed that part of it, you know, when lockdown happened. And again, you know, it was kind of nice, actually, initially not to be traveling all the time and to have more time with my family. But over time, I realized that it's those little interactions and, you know, even hanging out at the airport, if we're each waiting for a flight or whatever it may be, that really, I think, established a lot of great friendships over the years. And I really miss it. I really miss seeing everyone. Yeah, me too. Zosha, thank you for taking the time with us today. And, you know, more broadly and genuinely, thank you for all the great work you're doing there and the research efforts that you're leading. Well, thank you for, you know, hosting this podcast. It's been great to see you and NJ take over and, you know, congratulations and thank you for having me. It's been a fun conversation and I look forward to many more in the future. Absolutely. And thanks everyone for listening. This has been Lung Cancer Considered. Don't forget to like the podcast, to share it with your colleagues and friends. Stay safe, everyone. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 